Hello and welcome to this very special four episode mini series for World Gynaecologic Oncology Day. Starting on the 20th of September, we will be releasing an episode a week for four weeks. The theme for this year is Dare to Ask, so we'll be asking all the questions sent in by you and getting the answers from four incredible specialists. We have Professor Donald Brennan, who will be covering the surgical side of cancer. We have Dr. Karen Kadu, who will be focusing on genetics with a special interest in BRCA and Lynch syndrome. We have Helen Greeley, who is a psycho-oncologist with the NCCP, and she will be discussing the psychological implications of carrying the BRCA gene and also managing some of the psychological symptoms that can come with early menopause. And we have Louise Comerford, CNS in Hollis Street in St. Vincent's, who will be answering all of our nursing questions. We really hope you enjoy these four episodes. This season is kindly sponsored by CarePlus Pharmacy with all the proceeds being donated to the Emer Casey Foundation. The Emer Casey Foundation was founded in 2006 after the death at a young age of Emer Casey to ovarian cancer. We are so honoured to be a part of this movement to raise awareness of gynaecologic cancers and we hope we can help you find the answers to some of your questions. So good morning, Donald, and welcome to the podcast. We're really looking forward to discussing ovarian and cervical cancer with you this morning and the run-up to Gynae Oncology Day. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, the theme for this year is Dare to Ask. So we received a lot of questions from patients and we're really looking forward to getting some of the answers. Um, a lot of the questions are on surgery and associated side effects and treatment options. So if you don't mind, we'll just jump straight into it. Um, Great, thanks for having me. So we'll start off with just the basics of what is ovarian cancer and what are the most common side effects and symptoms that um, people should be aware of. So ovarian cancer is a um, it's a group of cancers. Uh, it's and it's been referred to as ovarian cancer, but it's actually cancers that can arise within the fallopian tube, within the ovary itself or within the peritoneum, which is the lining, the internal lining of the abdomen, which we can sometimes consider like wallpaper on the inside of the abdomen. And really ovarian cancer, as we would refer to it nowadays, um, is a, an accumulation or a conglomerate of those three, three different um, cancers. And within that area, then there are at least five or six different subtypes of ovarian cancer, which behave quite differently. So it's, it's really an amalgamation of a lot of different diseases. Uh, Unfortunately, it is a disease that uh, presents usually at a very late stage, whereby uh, patients have uh, got stage three or four disease. The disease has traveled extensively at the state by the time they present. And as a result, it needs to be managed in a very aggressive way and unfortunately has a poor prognosis. Um, the biggest problem with ovarian cancer is it doesn't have a very clear, what we would call cardinal sign or symptom, a, a warning sign. So unlike cervical cancer, which we'll talk about later, which, you know, it's very clear if people have abnormal bleeding, or particularly bleeding after intercourse, or bowel cancer, where people may have rectal bleeding or bleeding after bowel motion, or even lung cancer, where patients may present with coughing up some blood, ovarian cancer doesn't have those sort of symptoms, and the symptoms are nonspecific. And as a result, a lot of women will have the symptoms but won't have ovarian cancer. Uh, so we sometimes use the beat symptoms. Uh, we, we, we advise people to consider beat as a really good um, acronym to understand what some of the warning symptoms might be. And B is for bloating, which of course can happen to most women at some sort of stage. E is if they're eating a uh, difficulty or feeling uh, very full quickly after a small amount of food. A is for abdominal and pelvic pain, which they feel most days because everybody sometimes gets a little bit of um, pain. And then T is for toilet changes, particularly urinary frequency. Um, or bowel habits. And a lot of patients in retrospect will often let you tell you when they are diagnosed that they did notice a change in their bladder function for the months prior to that. 
Of course, lots of people have those symptoms, but it's important if they're persistent that they present to their doctor and that they do have some sort of imaging test done, usually an ultrasound, just to kind of look at things in more detail. That's great, Donal. And I suppose moving on from there, what are the stages of ovarian cancer and how does each stage tend to be treated? So as I said, um, most people present at advanced stage, which is uh, stage three or four. There are, like most cancers, there are stage one to four. Um, And very basically, like in most cancers, stage one, it's confined to the ovary. Uh, Stage two, it will have traveled to the pelvis, but not outside the pelvis. Um, stage three, it will, which is the most common presentation, it will, ch- it will have moved into the, into the abdomen. Um, and then stage four, it will have moved distantly, um, most commonly where they, patients uh, present with fluid around their lungs. Um, the most common kind of symptom that's associated with advanced stage is abdominal distension or and a, a feeling like you have a big tummy where your, your tummy is full of um, a fluid called ascites. Um, and Really, the stages are managed by a combination of surgery and chemotherapy, and we maybe can get on to the timing of that in a few minutes. Um, but most, nearly all women with ovarian cancer will, need, will require a combination of surgery and chemotherapy. Brilliant. That's great. And yeah, we might touch on that if that's okay, the treatment options that are available uh, for patients and the general timelines that they go on for as well. So if we go back to the idea that... Um, I suppose most patients, four out of five ovarian cancer patients present with stage three or four disease. I think that's important because so we should talk about that group as being the most common group. When those patients are diagnosed and those women are diagnosed, the biggest decision that has to be made is the timing of surgery and chemotherapy. And as I said, it's it's a dual approach. Really, one on their own is for very little benefit. Um, And there are two options. The first is to operate at the start, which we call primary surgery. And... Uh, and then give the patients, give the woman, complete the surgery. And then once she recovers from her surgery, give her six cycles of chemotherapy. Uh, and the second option is to give three cycles of what we call preoperative or neoadjuvant chemotherapy, then do an operation, and then give three more cycles of what we call adjuvant or postoperative uh, chemotherapy. And a lot of women at that stage may be considered then to, be, to re- con- continue on some sort of maintenance therapy. Um, I suppose... The key to understanding what we, um, how we decide that is that the surgery is actually the most important part, and that's a bit rich coming from a surgeon. Uh, but in fact, all the studies show that adequate surgery um, is the best predictor of, um, uh, of outcome and prognosis. And really what that means is being able to remove all of the visible tumor at the time of surgery. And it, they, we used to use a horrendous word called debulking, which was one of my one of my pet hates. That one of the things we're trying to get rid of out of language because it's out of the language used around, sur- around surgery for ovarian cancer, and we now call it cytoreductive surgery. And really, what we mean is we're trying to reduce the burden of cancer that the patient has. And of course, we even though we say we remove all visible tumor at the time of surgery for ovarian cancer, we know very clearly that there's microscopic disease left behind. And that's why we have to consider um, uh, chemotherapy to treat that microscopic disease. So that's why you have to have a combined approach. Brilliant. That's great. Thank you so much. And as you said, uh, surgery is recommended, but it can come with some side effects for patients. Do you mind um, just discussing some side effects that patients may experience um, post-op? Yeah, and I, you know, th- this is something that we spend a lot of time talking about with uh, women and their families because... Um, it's often a decision that's made in an acute 
crisis situation almost where the woman has kind of gone through a very has been sick for a while has gone through a few investigations and suddenly says she's got advanced cancer and has to have a big operation and um, so as i said the first thing that we try to discuss is the role or the rationale for surgery as i said earlier the idea of removing all the visible tumor and that idea of cytoreduction rather than debulking um i think the goal, the goal of surgery, as I said, is to remove all visible disease, but that can, re that can really require very extensive and aggressive surgery. And um, it can really range from people having a hysterectomy and removal of both tubes and ovaries and the omentum, which is this fat pad that hangs off, off everybody's uh, stomach. Um, and we call the omentum the policeman of the abdomen. And so if a patient, for example, gets um, appendicitis, the omentum sticks to the appendix. And likewise, if a patient develops a cancer on her ovary, or a fallopian tube, the omentum sticks to that ovary or fallopian tube. And the, it's, the omentum is full of fat and cancer cells love fat. So they just kind of run over like little lemmings into the omentum and keep going. And then they move elsewhere from there. So the omentum is usually the first place that the cancer is spread to. So that needs to be removed. And then really after that, you have to go on and remove anywhere else that you see tumor. And I sometimes tell patients, it's a bit like somebody's taking a bag of rice and opened it and thrown it into your abdomen. And then people like me go around picking out each grain of rice. Um, and sometimes those rice, those grains of rice can clump together and form bigger pieces of tumor. And they can stick to things like the bowel or the spleen. Um, and they sometimes have to be removed. So a lot, at least one in three women in, in our setting will have to have a, some of their bowel removed. We would generally try and join their bowel up together again, but that will obviously come with risks. And what we say to people is that one in five women will suffer a significant side effect that will require a further treatment as a result of their surgery. That can be anything from bleeding or infection, damage of things like the bowel, the bladder, or the ureters, clots afterwards. If they have a bowel resection, when we join the bowel up, it could leak. So these are all cute things that can happen in um, the hospital during, the, during their post-operative stay. And most women stay in hospital between 10 and 14 days after this sort of surgery. Um, and then afterwards, they can um, you know, develop things like lymphedema um, in the chronic setting. A lot of them can have significant bowel problems, uh, some bladder problems. Some will have a stoma and will require other, will have issues around that. And then of course, younger women will develop menopause issues. Um, so there's a lot that goes on there, isn't there? And you know, that's before they even start the chemotherapy. So it's a huge impact, it has a huge impact on women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when patients do complete their treatment, what does the, the follow up look like? So this is an area that's um, quite controversial uh, okay. around a lot of cancer. And I'm sure you've discussed this with other people working in other areas, too, about how you follow people up after they've been uh, they've completed their treatment. And um, uh, the main thing is that patients need to be followed up for five years. Um, and I suppose one of the big things that's maybe a little bit different with ovarian cancer is that really we never tell people they're cured of ovarian cancer. Um, and we've kind of learned a lot from HIV in particular, where you might remember in the 80s when people were diagnosed with HIV, particularly in New York at the start of the HIV epidemic, it was expected everybody would die of HIV. But of course, nowadays people live with HIV and many will die with HIV rather from HIV. And in cancer, we're starting to move that idea towards cancer as a chronic disease and living with the disease rather than looking for this Irish idea of an all clear. So um, when a lady comes into me and is diagnosed with ovarian cancer, the first kind of deal we make is that there will be no such thing as an all clear. 
because even if she has if, no, even if there's no evidence of disease on her scans or whatever, or she looks well, I can't tell her it's not going to come back. Um, and if we come back to how long you follow them up, we follow people up with for five years, people with advanced ovarian cancer. Only half of those will be alive at five years, but most of those will have had a recurrence. Um, so therefore, the follow-up is, is really debatable as to what you should do. And personally, I'm not sure that regular scans and CA125s are a good idea. Um, and it's much more important to listen to patients and to look out for their signs, because if a woman is well and has no symptoms, but has a marginally rise in CA125, for example, I'm not sure knowing that is of any benefit to anybody because she feels like she's on a precipice of some sort of disaster um, and we're not going to do anything about it. And likewise, if she has a scan that shows a tiny little nodule and she's going to have to come back for a scan in three months time, you're not going to, you know, it actually causes more anxiety. And we do have large trials that show that early treatment of asymptomatic recurrent disease does not improve survival. Mm. And what I mean by that is that catching it early doesn't make it better. So we're kind of moving away from aggressive follow-up of these patients um, for that reason, um, but it's still very controversial. Mm-hmm. And is there any current tests available that detect ovarian cancer early? Uh, the simple answer to that is no, um, and there is no screening test for ovarian cancer. There have been number, numerous large trials done of regular ultrasounds and blood tests, and they really oh, haven't shown the and then is there any physical signs and symptoms that people should be aware of that may indicate their ovarian cancer has returned? I know you were saying that we, it's important to listen to people for their symptoms rather than tests. Yeah, so this is interesting because most women will come back and tell you themselves it's back. And it, they just know how bad they felt at the time of diagnosis. And what is kind of interesting is that they actually... Um, they only realize how bad they felt when they get better after treatment. And so a lot of women will come in and say, listen, things aren't right. I know there's something wrong here. Either I've got some pain back. I've got that bloating. My bowels aren't working properly. Um, I've got shortness of breath. I'm more tired. Um, so it's again, there, and it comes back to those beat symptoms as well that I spoke about earlier, bloating, early eating um, abdominal pain and then changes in your um, in your bowel or urinary um, uh, uh, symptoms but to be honest with you it's very unusual that a woman wouldn't wouldn't pick up her symptoms the second time if it's come back very 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 early actually mm-hmm. and one of the symptoms you mentioned there is problems with your bowels like such as constipation um can you, I suppose you've explained why this is because if it's affected during the surgery or anything like that, but are there any other alternative options to just taking laxatives that can help women? Yeah, absolutely. And this is an area that's completely under-resourced in Ireland. Um, but I think the whole area of bowel dysfunction after cancer treatment is underestimated, uh, whether it's surgery, chemotherapy or radiation. Um and like <clears throat> we know, for example, that people who just have chemotherapy have a lot of bowel problems too. Um, but um, really, apart, I think pelvic floor physiotherapy and diet and, and referral to a dietitian are very important in these women, um, because a lot of the time it's very simple things that can actually be sorted out. Um, some people, for example, become very healthy eaters after they get a cancer diagnosis, which is great but they may sometimes actually be taking too much fiber that we've had cases like that. Um, and that's not a, that's not a criticism of the patient themselves. That's just that they're trying to do the best for their, and some people maybe don't need that much fiber depending on the type of surgery they've had. Likewise, 
a lot of people <clears throat> will have difficulty relaxing their pelvic floor after surgery. And actually people think, why do I need to relax my pelvic floor? Because I've been told all my life I need to do my Kegel exercises um, and my pelvic floor exercise after having babies and things. And actually really their problem with their bowel is that they just need some physio to actually retrain their pelvic floor. So there are lots of things that can be done to try and improve that as opposed to just throwing laxatives at people. That's great. And um, I think the next question is honestly the most um, the most talked about question that we get on our Instagram anyway, and it's just regarding HRT. Um, is HRT recommended for women post-op and does this opinion change if they carry the BRAC mutation? <laughs> so like I could talk about this for a year um, and you would be going around in circles because um, it's an interesting idea that HRT is the most um, kind of, I suppose, at least at a cultural level, it's one of the most controversial medications around. Um, and it's also the most, uh, one of the most, um, some of the studies are very poorly presented on this uh, because, because of its, I suppose, the media attention it gets. Sometimes you get a lot of headline um, kind of headlines that don't reflect what's written in the studies. So really, the first thing about HRT is that it's an individualized, starting HRT is an individualized decision between a patient and a doctor, and it should actually be 50-50, because if a lady comes in and, you know, she is adamant that, that her quality of life is severely affected by menopause symptoms, and the doctor says, well, if, I, if you have this, and it may slightly increase your risk of, um, of the cancer coming back, if that's been discussed with her and, you know, she thinks she'll improve her quality of life. She can make an informed decision to take HRT, in my opinion. And I think we need to overcome that kind of paternalistic approach whereby people are just denied HRT. Um, and a lot of the studies are very poorly powered around cancer and HRT. So a lot of the data isn't as good as people say. So the most important thing really is that to make sure that um, there's no other contraindication to the woman having HRT, such as a previous heart attack or stroke, or maybe, you know, an ER positive breast cancer or something like that, um, rather than just saying you can't have HRT. <laughs> um, with regards to ovarian cancer, there are, it really depends on the specific subtype of the cancer. So there's a rare type of ovarian cancer that affects young women called low-grade serous ovarian cancer. And it, it's, it's a disease that really we, we don't want to give HRT for because um, uh, the um, we know it's responsive to estrogen, and we know that people who are put on anti-estrogen medications do uh, much better. So we often put people on, uh, and it does unfortunately affect younger women. So that is an issue. Um, otherwise, really, to be honest, for the standard high-grade serous ovarian cancer, which is the most common subtype, if a woman is under fifty and goes into a premature menopause, there's no reason that she shouldn't really go on HRT. Uh, if she's over 50, I, one would, would argue whether it's, it's, you'd have to think about whether it's really a benefit to her. Um, then the other big issue is the BRCA mutation. And really, in women who have not had breast cancer, who have their ovaries out for BRCA, um, um, for, uh, for risk-reducing surgery for BRCA, all the observational data suggests that HRT does not increase the risk of uh, developing breast cancer going forward. Obviously, if they've had a breast cancer already, really there is a con there, there is a, it's written all over the place that they shouldn't have hrt so it's, it's a much more difficult discussion to have so really um 
it's a kind of an individualized decision. I think the other big thing is that as a result of recent publicity is to remember what are menopause symptoms and what are not, and what can HRT fix and what can it not. Um, and really, you know, HRT is, works best for treatment of hot flushes and night sweats. Um, it probably works for some uh, anxiety and mood disturbance a little bit. Uh, but the other big area, of course, is uh, vaginal dryness and urogenital atrophy. Um, and there's no reason any of these women can't go on vaginal estrogen, uh, which is totally underprescribed. So ultimately, uh, it's important, I suppose, to take a kind of a clear history from the patient, listen to the patient, and make a joint decision with her. And if a woman under 50 uh, has a premature surgical menopause, we know that they have a very long menopause. We know it has a major impact on their quality of life. And we know that HRT will improve those symptoms, but not always get rid of them. Um, so I think it's important in those women that, you know, they, they are offered HRT. And in my own practice, we put them on HRT. Thanks, Donald. I think a lot of women will really benefit from uh, you discussing that in great detail there. Um, another thing kind of that women have um, said to us an awful lot and was requested a lot in our questions was that they feel really underprepared for how difficult the side effects of the menopause can be. Um, do you have any suggestions or resources, websites, anything like that, that you would recommend that provides the most accurate, up-to-date information? Yeah, so I think this is all about... Um, this is something doctors and nurses really need to step up to the plate about. It's This is about education from the very start. And actually, by the biggest thing that women with severe uh, menopause symptoms complain about is the unexpected severity of the, of the symptoms and the fact that they weren't forewarned about them. Um, and so I'm actually a big believer that the first, like from the very start of their cancer journey, one of the things that needs to be discussed with them is that they are going to become menopausal. And to, and to put a, a plan in place around that. And that includes that they're made comfortable talking about it um, and that maybe they, they encourage them to talk to a family member or a friend about it, about the impact it's having on them. And you might say that's a little bit soft, but we know that that has a big impact on people's ability to cope. Um, really, the good resources that are aimed at, are mostly aimed at breast cancer survivors, but they can be used for all cancer patients. Um, uh, the Irish Cancer Society have some very good information on it now. Um, the British Menopause Society have some excellent um, in, information on their website for patients. Uh, and it's all very evidence-based, which is very reassuring. And Macmillan have a very good um, breast cancer uh, menopause section. The other, area, the other area that is quite good is, I suppose, around the non-HRT management of um, different uh, problems associated with menopause, particularly sleep. Um, and I didn't mention sleep earlier when I was talking about menopause symptoms. And the, um, the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne have a very good, uh, led by Martha, Dr. Professor Martha Hickey, have a very good menopause after cancer centre there. And their website has some excellent non-medical kind of treatment options, such as cognitive behavioural therapy, um, uh, acupuncture, aromatherapy, things like that, which whilst they won't cure things, they will definitely improve things. So um, I, I think, um, again, on the dare to ask team, I encourage women that if they are suffering, they ask. And if their doctor can't, um, you know, help them personally, ask them, ask their, ask them to ask their doctor to dare to ask and ask another doctor. Um, uh, because there are people who will help that. And of course, we have our own menopause after cancer um, study running at the moment, um, in the, uh, which is looking at the women who can't have HRT. Um, and we are trying to find newer drugs which will help things help people in the future.
That's brilliant. And actually, I think um, Finian is going to come on and do a, a podcast with us on that and help spread the word about that. So that would be great to, to get more awareness around that study. Um, do you feel that there is scope to educate doctors more on the use of HRT in women post-surgical menopause? Some patients have mentioned that they can feel there's a, a reluctance um, for medical staff to prescribe it. Um, yes, there is uh, a need to improve that education, but that is happening, to be honest. Um, my colleague and great friend, uh, Deirdre Lundy, Dr. Deirdre Lundy, who's a GP and a menopause specialist, has trained an enormous number of GPs in menopause management over the last um, number of years. Um, and ultimately, this is something that does need to be managed in the community. Um, and uh, I think educating healthcare professionals is one thing, but I suppose changing views and ideas is a slightly different thing, and that takes time. Um, but it is it is happening, and there are plenty of um, people, uh, plenty of uh, GPs who have British Menopause Society um, accreditation as menopause practitioners now. But of course, there's not enough. We need more. Um, but I suppose one of the good things is as more and more GPs are female, they will um, address this issue, I think, slightly better than the old GP model. And that's not to say that male GPs aren't able to deal with this, but I think sometimes women, women are more comfortable discussing some of these problems with a female GP. And how long after surgery typically does the menopause symptoms last in post and pre-menopausal women? Yeah, so it's, again, it's all individualized, to be honest with you, but we do know um, that in the non-cancer population, at least, and this is something that, the, that is totally under-researched, and we need to do a lot of research on simple things like looking at how long does menopause last in cancer patients. Of course, everything is based around survival, um, and these sort of questions are rarely asked. Uh, but in the non-cancer population, we know that women, if women have their... Um, uh, ovaries removed, the average kind of the, half of them will have night sweats or hot flushes for about seven and a half years. But in the premenopausal women under the age of 50, that can last up to nearly 12 years. So it obviously depends on the women's age when they had their ovaries removed. But it does demonstrate how long this can go on. And like, I don't think as a man, anyway, I have no comprehension of how difficult it must be for women who are, you know, have difficulty sleeping in particular. And I think the sleep issue is the, is probably the, has the greatest impact on their quality of life from talking to them. Um, so it's a major, major problem. Can I just ask, is the sleep is related to like having hot flushes throughout the night or is it completely separate? It's if you it's a really good question. It's hard to know, but there's definitely a. Um, it's, there's obviously a group of people who have pre-existing sleep problems. Um, so, and they can be exacerbated by hot flushes, but there, there are a lot of women who say they sleep set fine until they became menopausal and then they are woken up by hot flushes and night sweats and then they cannot get back to sleep. Now, what happens then is I think, and it's probably happens to us all that when you wake up in the middle of the night, if you get a bit annoyed or you, your mind starts racing, you get into a cycle where you think you can't sleep. So that's where this whole idea of, um, cognitive behavioral therapy comes in about you know mindfulness and just relaxing and not letting your mind kind of run away with itself um when that does happen um but i think there's definitely a major country there's definitely very clear evidence to suggest to me at least that um hrt improves sleep which would suggest therefore that as you reduce their hot flushes and night sweats their sleep gets better 
And there's um there's a little bit of confusion, I suppose, because um people can experience side effects from menopause and chemotherapy, and they say sometimes they can be similar, and it's hard to differentiate between the two. Is there any way women can tell the difference, uh, whether it's menopause related or chemotherapy related or surgically related? So, um, this is important not just in cancer but across the whole of health at the moment, with the focus on menopause. But there are only a small number of symptoms that are definitively defined as menopause symptoms whether you have cancer or not. And they are hot flushes and night, uh, night sweats, uh, insomnia and uh, vaginal dryness. Um, all the other things like anxiety, depression, brain fog, joint pain, while they probably are associated with menopause, they're multifactorial um, and they're not defined as actual menopause symptoms by the, the, I suppose, the gurus of menopause, if you want to put it that way. Um, and of course, treatment, as you, uh, as you both know, Anxiety, depression, brain fog, or chemo brain, or whatever you want to call it, a cognitive dysfunction, are all so common in, in men and women who get cancer that it's hard to kind of differentiate those out. Um, and then on top of that, um, particularly people who are on anti-endocrine therapy for either breast cancer or, or maybe in that small group of ovarian cancer patients who are put on it, it's really difficult to figure out what's what because, you know, Aromatase inhibitors have different um, side effects to tamoxifen, even though they both have the same ultimate aim, really, don't they? So uh, it can be very difficult to differentiate those out. But then it's very easy to say that something like a neuropathy, like pins and needles in your hands and feet, are related to, to your chemotherapy. That you know, So the, there's very clear symptoms that are menopause-related. There's very clear symptoms that are treatment-related. And then there's a group in the middle that are kind of foggy. That's great. Thanks, Donal. And thanks for such a comprehensive overview of ovarian cancer there. I think it'll definitely help answer a lot of the questions that people had sent in. Uh, we might move on to cervical cancer, if that's OK. And um, just what are the most common signs and symptoms? Um, so cervical cancer uh, is totally different to ovarian cancer. Um, and it's important, I suppose. And uh, just to be clear before we start in cervical cancer, like, uh, there's a kind of a important idea out there that if you have a smear, normal smear test, for example, you, you don't have, have ovarian cancer, but of course smear tests have no, in, no impact on um, detection of ovarian cancer. Um, in Ireland, thankfully, most cervical cancers are now detected in asymptomatic women because they're detected by screening and um, by people attending for their, what used to be a smear test is now called a screening test. We can get into that in a few minutes. Uh, uh, but those that are symptomatic, um, will generally present with abnormal vaginal bleeding, which is either bleeding between the periods, heavy periods are, are the most, I suppose, worrying symptom for us is bleeding after sex or bleeding after intercourse. Um, they can also uh, present with increased or offensive vaginal discharge. They can present with pelvic pain, back pain. Um, and I suppose it's important to kind of, and I'm sure at this stage people know this, but to re restate it that um, a, a normal smear is not reassuring in a symptomatic woman. So a smear test are purely um, read our, our screening tests, as we now call them. Sorry, I better, I better use the correct term or I'll get in trouble. Screening tests really are of no reassurance if a lady is symptomatic. If a lady is symptomatic, she needs to be seen and examined. Um, and I suppose that's, the, that's, that's really important as much as anything else. So if you have symptoms, particularly uh, irregular vaginal bleeding, you need to be uh, seen by a doctor and examined. That's great. Thanks a million. Um, and what between um, HPV and cervical cancer? 
so HPV causes 99.9, well, 99.7% of cervical cancers. It's, it is the cause of cervical cancer. Um, and that's why HPV vaccination and screening offers the opportunity to eradicate cervical cancer. Um, and that's a really exciting thing at a um, international level, because remember, cervical cancer, um, whilst it causes devastation in Ireland, it causes far more devastation in um, lesser developed parts of the world, uh, particularly in the Indian subcontinent and sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so it's a huge problem in poorer parts of the world. So the idea that we can eradicate HPV and cervical cancer is really, really exciting. That's brilliant. Thank you. Do you want me to talk about how it causes it or anything? Or uh, I think that's okay. Yeah, um, unless you think it's important to. But I think it's it's so reassuring and exciting to know that 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 is a potential. So I think I think it's okay. Um, thanks a million. And um, what's the general timeline that women can expect to have surgery and uh, add treatment for cervical cancer? Uh, so cervical cancer, early stage cervical cancer is treated with surgery and more advanced surgical cancer, cervical cancer is treated with uh, chemotherapy and radiation. Uh, we try to operate on people within six weeks of diagnosis, um, if we can at all. Uh, a bit like ovarian cancer, there's a bit of thought that has to go into the operation um, and some extra tests that some people need to have. And then obviously we, tr we expect that all patients are discussed at a gynae cancer uh, multidisciplinary meeting before their operation to make sure that that's the right um, uh, the right option for that lady. And sometimes if it goes past that time limit, it may be worth it for a week or two to make sure that the right decision has been made. Um, if we make a decision to start um, chemo radiation, that usually starts within about four weeks. And in fairness to our colleagues in St. Luke's, they are very quick at turning patients around and getting them started once that decision is made. And they have a very efficient system. Um, and usually if, if patients are being um, given chemo radiotherapy, uh, they will have um, six weeks of external beam radiotherapy, which is external radiation. And once a week, they'll also have a, a single dose of chemotherapy. And when they've completed that, then they will then have a couple of sessions of what we call brachytherapy or internal radiation, where they, they're brought in and either put to sleep or given a spinal anesthetic. And then they have uh, small uh, radiation um, rods inserted into the tumor itself. So um, the timelines are slightly different. But in general, I have to say in Ireland, our ability to get people treated for cervical cancer is meeting all international um, recommendations, which is reassuring. That's brilliant to hear. And I suppose it's moving on to the stages. We know most cancers are stage one to four. Is cervical cancer the same? Yes, it is. Um, there's a couple of substages. <laughs> it keeps getting subdivided into A's and B's and one A's and one B's and things like that. But it is very much a one to four. Um, and really, on a very basic level, stage one is treated with um, uh, surgery. And anything above stage one is generally treated with chemo radiotherapy. And the reason for that is, is it's an interesting concept, actually, because it's not that uh, we know that um, chemo radiotherapy and surgery are, are equivalent from the point of view of um, outcomes and that you can you can cure people using both treatments. But the, what we try to avoid is where women who have surgery have to have radiation afterwards because they're the group who get the most um, side effects. So we try to 
that's why we spent so much time deciding on who should have surgery and who shouldn't, because we tried to make sure that we would get a clear margin on the surgical resection. And then the woman will not require post-operative radiation because that group of women can get a lot of long-term difficult complications. And if a woman has a radical hysterectomy, um, including the cervix, do they still have to attend for a smear test? Very rarely. Um, there used to be a vogue for what we call vault smears. There's, it's extremely rare that a patient would require a vault smear now after surgery. And actually, we, we advise against smears after um, radiation. Great. Um, thanks a billion. And uh, our treatment, um, are treatments available and the outcomes uniform across all countries? And if not, how can patients ensure that they are getting the best treatment to base cancer? Um, yeah, so there's huge disparities across the world for in the management of cervical cancer. And, you know, I work with the International Gynecology Cancer Society and I speak to my colleagues in South America and in sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, when you hear this, what they, the things that they see and on a regular basis, you realize how bad things can be. Um, and that's why prevention through HPV vaccination is such an important thing because it would be, I don't think you will ever be able to resource some of those settings to actually provide the sort of care that's needed um, for um, people with advanced cervical cancer. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, in Ireland, um, cervical cancer outcomes are, are relatively good, actually, compared to international standards. Um, outcomes for ovarian cancer are not as good, um, and that's an important issue. And, and to me, that's probably because the surgery hasn't been centralized as much as it should be. Um, and that's maybe a question for another day, but really women having surgery for ovarian cancer should be managed in the high volume uh, center. Uh, but ultimately, um, the cervical cancer outcomes across the world are totally dependent on access to particularly radiotherapy. And of course, not everybody has access to radiation. And a lot of my colleagues around the world have to operate on women with very advanced disease, which is really a palliative procedure, um, which was here we would give them radiation and you could attempt to cure them. So it's really a resource issue. Um, and of course, it's an education issue too. And it's an issue around women being stigmatized because of cervical cancer. And there's definitely a huge stigma in Ireland and internationally around um, the, um, the diagnosis of cervical cancer and that actually often delays presentation and um, that women in some way have some sort of undefined acknowledgement that they in some way contributed to their cancer because of the relationship with HPV. And even, you know, in Ireland, there's no doubt that women feel stigmatized when they're diagnosed with, with cervical cancer and do not want to talk about it within their communities. Um, uh, so I think um, it, that's a whole area that's very kind of, it's an area that needs a huge amount of work, but I think Irish women should be reassured that with um, our screening program, our HPV vaccination program, and our um, uh, our access to surgery and radiation, we are able to look after cervical cancer patients to a high, very high level. Brilliant, Donna. Thank you so much. And um, how can treatments and outcomes be improved uh, for patients all across the world as a whole? And I know that's a big, big topic. Um. Yeah, well, uh, it's a whole podcast on its own, but, um, you know, really from the point of view of 
all gynae cancers, HPV vaccination, smoke, stopping smoking, um, address, address obesity, all these things can prevent cancers coming along. Being able to offer women, um, everybody who wants it, genetic testing for a BRCA mutation would have a huge impact on cancer, uh, uh, cancers around the world. I suppose removing the myths around genetic testing, you could do a whole podcast on that. Um, I often wonder, it's a bit like IVF in the 80s. The, the people, the pioneers of IVF in the late 70s and 80s were considered almost devils. And now IVF is a standard around, you know, you can get IVF almost some, you know, in every city in the world. Uh, genetic testing will go like that. And I think that will allow us to pick up more and more people at risk. Um, and I think really outcomes, treatment outcomes across the world will be based on prevention more than treatment. Um, uh, and that's where the WHO really started to push uh, in general. Um, from the point of view of treatment, how can we improve it? Well, we can standardize um, surgery in particular, and that's a big issue, believe it or not, because every surgeon thinks to do a great operation. But then if you ask, if you try and standardize surgery, uh, it can it's, it's totally different. So I'm sure when you guys work on a chemo ward, you know that if you treat a patient today, she will get the same treatment. If you go back into work tomorrow, you'll give the patient the same treatment. Whereas if you send a patient to me, she might have one type of surgery. And if you send her to another surgeon, she might have a different type of surgery. So there's, there's the need to standardize that surgery is very important. Um, and you do that through accreditation and quality assurance. And then of course, the biggest issue is um, access to drugs for the metastatic and recurrent population. Um, and this is a difficult area because um, Often the newest drug may not be the most effective drug. It may be the most hyped drug, but it may not be the most effective. And um, uh, immunotherapy is a good example, as you guys know as well. Um, it's not effective in ovarian cancer. It should be. We have a whole research program looking into this, why it doesn't work. Um, but it's increasingly evident that it's, becoming, it's very effective in recurrent and metastatic cervical cancer. And we're hoping to see in the next couple of weeks studies comparing it to standard of care, which is chemotherapy and Avastin. But um, if it is, that will be a huge step forward for um, cervical cancer. That's great. Such an exciting time um, to have possibly the option of immunotherapy available. Thanks a million. And I suppose the last question, and I just found this really interesting. Um, if somebody decides to go for a second opinion, um, can the individual research who they want to attend and will it affect them going back to the original hospital that they went to for treatment? I think this is a really important topic. And um, uh, first of all, I would encourage anybody to ask for a second opinion and I encourage my own patients to do so. And I would also say to them that in my experience, uh, at least, I would know very few practitioners or doctors who would be in any way offended by a patient who would request a second opinion. Uh, in fact, I see a lot of second opinions and I would say most of them go back to their referring uh, um, uh, center and I generally encourage them to do so. Um, maybe it's for geographical reasons, maybe because they have a date for their operation earlier than we could offer them the date. Maybe it's because they're more comfortable there and they just want that reassurance. Um, I, I really think it's important that um, you know, if you're in, if you're in doubt about heading down any treatment path, uh, and you want the second opinion that you request it, um, and to be honest, if it's a case that you feel that as a result of requesting that second opinion, you are being, you you don't feel comfortable in in, your, in the original centre, um, you should probably 
take that as an omen and um, and look elsewhere. Um, because ultimately, we have to have a very open. We work. We live in a day in a, in a, in a kind of culture of open disclosure, and um, you know, really, I don't have ever have an issue with somebody uh, get asking for a second opinion. What I would say is that I, it's it's unusual in my own situation, at least, that I would change something on a second opinion. So you have to have a certain expectation when you go for a second opinion that, um, you know, you will, that, that it may well be that the, the things will not be changed. Um, but if that gives you a reassurance, that's good. And I get a lot of second opinions for women, unfortunate women with recurrent ovarian cancer looking for an operation. And it's very rare that I would actually suggest they should have an operation and that I would actually not that I would not tell them to continue on their second or third line chemotherapy. And I think that's an important example. But, you know, unfortunately, these women are often in a palliative situation. And if that reassurance that they've kind of gone through that everything and, and looked in every, gone down every avenue and, and addressed it, gives them some sort of closure, I think that's very important. So, um, uh, as I say, please dare to ask. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Donald, thanks so much. Is there anything that we have missed that you think it's important to, to include for the podcast? No, I don't think so. I think you've covered everything. It's And it's great that these are patient questions mm. um, because these are the important ones. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Donald. It was really, really enjoyable and I think people are going to find it really uh, beneficial. So thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Answers for Cancers podcast. Please share this podcast with anybody who you think it might help. Also, if you can like and subscribe, it lets people know we're here. You can alternatively contact us on Instagram at the answers for cancers underscore podcast. And if you have any questions on anything that we discussed today, please email us at the answers for cancers podcast at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram.